Smartcast. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show featuring Jason Zuck. Jason has been an intuitive psychic medium since 2004. This show will cover a variety of topics relating to spirituality, mediumship, self-improvement, and intuitive guidance. Whatever interests you, remember that we are all here to share and learn. Sit back and get ready to socialize with the social psychic. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's with great pleasure that I have the opportunity to introduce special guest Bridget Shea. Bridget is the author of the Handbook of Chinese Medicine and Ayurveda, an integrated practice of ancient healing traditions. Bridget is an acupuncturist, a Chinese medicine practitioner, and Ayurveda educator, whose private practice is an integration of Chinese and Ayurvedic medicine. She writes and teaches workshops on Ayurveda, energy medicine, and healthy breathing, and resides in New York. Her book provides a comprehensive reference tool for maximizing healing of the mind, body, and spirit through a holistic synergy of Chinese medicine and Ayurveda. Shay details the foundational principles of each tradition and the many concepts they share, such as qi and prana, meridians and nadis, and energy centers and chakra. It is with great pleasure that I introduce Ms. Shea at this time. Welcome to the show, Bridget. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. I, um, I'm, I'm excited to have us talk about this topic because I think our society is so focused with modern medicine on pharma pharmaceutical companies and trying to treat conditions in terms of diagnoses. I feel like a lot of people focus on one's diagnosis then rather than looking at the whole system itself. And mm. what I like about Chinese medicine and Ayurveda is that you have something that looks at it from a completely different point of view. Mm. And I wanted to ask you as my first question what would you, in terms of, a, of an overview for our audience, if they're not familiar with this area at all, how would you compare Chinese medicine and Ayurveda to traditional medicine? Well, the first thing that I would say is that Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine are, in fact, systems of medicine just like modern Western medicine or allopathic medicine, as it's called, are today. So while there may not have been a scientific theory in place at the time that these complete medicine systems were developed, they still have validity. They, and 
although we have all of these advances in technology and our ability to manufacture pharmaceuticals and things like that and and, and lab equipment and the ability to do blood work and, and things along those lines, still, even with all of that, we are lacking information and we're lacking knowledge. And more and more people are becoming more open to pursuing a complementary path along with their Western medicine treatment because as a as a patient, they're feeling as though there's something lacking in Western medicine for them. And then from the practitioners then, there are many practitioners who are also feeling like there's something lacking in terms of where Western medicine can go with certain treatments for certain conditions for certain people. And they, too, are branching out into wanting to learn more about integrating ancient wisdom um, from these traditional medicine systems into a comprehensive practice that they can use today, integrating the modern technology we have and these ancient wisdom traditions. So um, I find as I practice that there are many things in Chinese medicine and in Ayurvedic medicine that even 10 or 20 years ago may have been seen as as woo-woo or, or I don't even know how you would want to describe it, but not valid in terms of of Western science or Western medicine. And now Western medicine seems like they, in Western science seem to keep coming up with all of these things that that are validating concepts in Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine. Now, as a Chinese and Ayurvedic medicine practitioner, I don't feel like we need this validation, but it's nice to hear that Western science is putting a Western name for the terminology that we've been using um, for so long in Ayurveda and Chinese medicine. So the first thing that I would say is that I think that there needs to be an open mind and a respect for these ancient medical systems because they are complete medical systems that incorporate diagnostic uh, criteria and uh, prognosis and treatment, and they are systems that have a complete foundation for understanding the body and the mind and, and our interrelationship with the environment and the natural world. And in addition to that, um, I would say that Chinese medicine and Ayurveda while in some respects travel along the same path as, as Western science does in terms of having diagnosis, in terms of having prognosis, in terms of identifying things as acute or chronic, in terms of identifying things as exterior pathogens or internally generated imbalances, um, Chinese medicine and Ayurveda have a, a different worldview entirely when viewing a human being. Because it's, it's my sense 
that in the Western science realm, we see things more as parts and pieces, and we and we have to break things down and isolate things in an unnatural habitat in order to be able to study them and and things along those lines. But in Chinese medicine and Ayurveda, the individual is not seen as separate from their environment. So there is no way to remove them from their environment to study them. What we do instead is ask people about their environment. We will ask where they were born. We, we ask where they live. We, we want to know more about the environment in which they live in. Do they live in an old farmhouse? Do they live in a new condo? Do they live in a um, a development in a suburban area or in a in an apartment in a city? Do they live in the desert? Do they live by the beach? It depends. All of these things make a difference in in their presentation and in 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 their life, in their daily life. So, it's helpful for a practitioner to know this information because. What happens in the external world, the forces that exist that are at play that that play out in weather patterns and in climate, they also are things that are at play in our bodies they are They are forces and factors that influence the body and and influence the mind and the and lastly, I would say, in these living traditional medicines of Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine, the body and the mind are not separate entities. They are intimately connected, intimately connected. And when we try to separate them, we're doing ourselves a disservice because not only are we not fully being in our body as a complete being, but we are um, blocking ourselves from being able to to fully integrate any any healing modality that that we may come into contact with. I feel like your book is more relevant now than ever before uh, in terms of preventive preventative medicine and looking Mm -hmm. at trying to have, I I would say, the best balance between mind, body, and spirit, as, as as you just mentioned, the holistic aspect of it. I feel like that's the direction we're probably headed in the future. Headed in the I hope so. Um, yeah, I, I, I as well. <laughs> I I, I want to ask you, what motivated you to write this book? When I was in Chinese medicine school, we were oftentimes giving people in the clinic that would come in the clinic for treatments handouts on what exercises to do and lists of what foods to eat and things along those lines. And I'd be getting down on the floor and showing them yoga poses. And um, and then as I, as I graduated from school and moved on into my own practice, I was doing even more of that. I was doing even more handouts and people were coming in and wanting to know what is spleen chi deficiency, uh, what dosha am I, uh, what what does liver chi mean? What are meridians? What book could you uh, recommend that I get to understand all of these things? And there wasn't a single, like one single resource that I could recommend people go to. There are a lot of fascinating, great books out on the market, but I wanted to be able to recommend something that was 
more accessible to the layperson so that if you knew the terminology, you would just cruise through the book easily. But if you didn't know the terminology, it wouldn't be such a hindrance to being able to understand the the text so and the underlying foundational principles of the medicines that that we talk about so much when people come in for an acupuncture treatment or or the terminology that they hear about in Sanskrit when they go to a yoga class about ayurveda so i it really came from a desire to create something that I could say, here, this is it. This will explain X, Y, or Z, whatever the common things are that people are interested in finding out about. But it also has that section on prevention and maintenance so that people can utilize it as a resource to know what to do for themselves if they have some back pain or if they have a cold or if they feel like their vata is out of balance, for example, it's really easy to just go into this book and look that stuff up. How do you do a castor oil pack? How do I make kitchery for a cleanse? All that stuff is in there. So it's kind of an amalgamation of of the decade worth of Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine information I've I've been trickling out to people here and there. It's all contained in one place. And then the other reason that I wanted to write this book is because I felt like, for me, really embodying the concepts in Chinese medicine was difficult in in acupuncture school. And embodying the concepts in Ayurvedic medicine was a lot easier for me. And there are many reasons for this, but... I I actually ended up using my study of Ayurvedic medicine as a way to better understand the concepts in Chinese medicine so that I really felt like like I really got what for example the elements felt like in the body and what they were and what they would present like in another person not just from rote memorization of the qualities of that element or the qualities of that type of chi, but but just a, a really intuitive grasp and understanding of what they were. So, so I was trying on my own to understand in a mind-body way the essence of both medicines, but using Ayurvedic medicine as sort of my my go-to, and then figuring out what the concepts in Ayurvedic medicine equated to in Chinese medicine. So in another sense, this book is a resource for anyone else who's in that position. A lot of people get into, yeah, a lot of people get into Chinese medicine. They want to go to acupuncture school, but they have a background in, in yoga or in energy medicine. So So they have some sense of, the energetics behind, say, vata, pitta, and kapha, the three doshic types, and then they get to Chinese medicine school, and it might not make as much sense to them as as it would intuitively with the background in yoga, and vice versa. Vice versa, there may be an acupuncturist out there who's really interested in Ayurvedic medicine. The concept of panchakarma or cleansing really fascinates them, but they, but it feels so foreign to them they may not feel like they have 
a, a good enough resource to truly understand like where the concepts overlap. So this is another really good reason um, to for th that I wrote this book is because I wanted to also provide that melding of of where everything is similar. So oftentimes we we compare things by contrasting them, but in this book, although there are some areas where there are differences in the medicines, and I point those out. For the most part, it's more about bringing them together. I like that a lot. I I want to ask you, looking at the way that both of these traditions correspond to each other, it sounds like you've integrated them so that you have a little of everything in this book for the practitioner, for a student, for anyone who mm -hmm. really wants to benefit from this. And I think that that's, that's a great thing to have a cross-reference all under one cover. Um, for our audience who may not be familiar with Ayurveda, can you tell us a little about what is Ayurveda? Ayurveda is it's a it's a Sanskrit word, and Sanskrit is the ancient language of India, and it means the science or the wisdom of life. So. It's interesting that a medical system is named the wisdom of life. Right there that says something, to me anyway. That medicine isn't just about fixing something that's broken. That medicine has an inherent wisdom in it and about life, basically. And so... I, I respect that and I resonate with that. And being someone who's interested in healing and well-being and the integration of the entire person, I I naturally I feel such an affinity to these to these medicines and and specifically Ayurvedic medicine. It has a branch of sur of surgery. It has a branch of rejuvenative therapies. It has a branch that includes uh, cleansing techniques. It addresses different types of coughs and colds and diabetes. It wasn't called that then, but... It, it it addresses parasitology and it has all these branches like modern medicine has and it has remedies for these things and it has different types of presentations for these things like dry cough versus wet cough a cough a cough you know it, it has different ways of breaking things down just like modern medicine does but it also says right in the foundational texts that the main purpose of medicine is to keep the person healthy so that they can achieve success in life and final emancipation. That's the purpose. And, it, and a huge emphasis in Ayurveda is on keeping the energetic of the body balanced. 
so that when things just go slightly out of balance, we correct them then before they become a deep-set pattern, which could be called a disease or an illness. So the other thing with Ayurveda is that the mind and the body, like I mentioned, are not separate entities. Not only that, but there is there are there is the mind, there is the intellect, there is the physical body, and there is the soul or the spiritual body. So it recognizes that there's an entire being, a multidimensional being that every human is. And by addressing one facet of that being, you are addressing every other dimension of their being as well. And that those aspects of an individual are not, they don't exist in isolation from the rest of the aspects of the individual. And that that individual is not in isolation from their family, from their community, or from the environment at large, that everything and everyone is intrinsically connected. So it's, it is a, it's a body of wisdom. It's a body of wisdom that teaches us or gives us guidelines that we can follow on our own and with assistance from people that are well-trained in, this, in Ayurveda, to in that we can follow in order to keep supporting our well-being so that we can live more happy, peaceful lives feeling comfortable in our own skin. That's a great concept in terms of harmonizing all that. Um, let me ask you this. With reference to Chinese medicine, and based on your background with Ayurveda, from your perspective, how would you view healing itself compared to the way traditional medicine is of the concept of healing? That's a good question. I view healing as a very individual process on on one level. Because we, just like a spiritual path, we all have our own journey in the healing process. And we all have our individual, we are all a snowflake. We are all that unique thing that no one else is. We are all made up of the same stuff, but in different quantity and and in different proportion. So that we are we are also unique whether it's due to our genetic inheritance or our environment we each have our own individual healing journey to go on and i really don't separate the healing journey from life in general i feel as though they're pretty much one and the same Yes, we get acute illnesses, and yes, we go to specialists in in areas that can help us rebalance ourselves in in the midst of those illnesses. But 
really healing, I think, is bigger than that. I think healing has a lot to do with really understanding and knowing ourselves and knowing ourselves honestly, who we are, and what what parts of ourselves are the ego, what parts of ourselves are are not, what parts of ourselves do we feel connected to, what are our likes, what are our dislikes, what makes us feel alive and like we're going with the flow and what doesn't, and then taking action to balance out those things that don't feel like they enhance our vitality. So I, I I really feel like overall that healing is is as much a journey as being alive is a journey. I think it's all I think it's part of I think it's totally intertwined with it and and that it that it, it that it can be addressed on many different levels. I feel that there's the there's the physical body that that needs to be healed sometimes, but sometimes you can feel something coming in through the energy field. So then you're going to work on more of a an energy or a chi or a pranic level to correct the imbalance in the energy level. Or sometimes you'll notice that you have a negative belief about yourself or a, a pattern of thinking that that doesn't enhance your vitality and then and then you'll try and shift that or you'll notice that there's an emotional state that keeps arising or it sticks around longer than you feel it should be there and and so then you'll work on the emotional body and sometimes you know we feel like there's something missing or or something that that we want to find and and so we'll work on the spiritual body and all of these things are are connected and they're all they're all like constantly shifting and changing and 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 interacting with the environment and with our loved ones and with our coworkers and and I think all of that has a has a role to play in our healing process so i I really feel like like healing is is a form of magic in a sense because i know for myself personally that when i'm working on healing something or i'm aware of something that needs to be healed it takes me to a different uh, it takes me to a different part of myself or it or it causes me to have to look at how I'm perceiving reality and how I'm perceiving myself and if if what I'm feeling and thinking is true or not or real. It's very interesting. It's such a fascinating, fascinating thing. So. It really sounds it. For something that's <laughs> thousands of years old, it, it sounds mm-hmm. very advanced and very developed in terms of its methodology. It mm-hmm. In terms... Comparing what you just described, Ayurveda, can you give us a, a description, at least based on your understanding, of how to best describe Chinese medicine for our audience? So Chinese medicine is – it's so Ayurveda 
is more, it's from India. And Chinese medicine, of course, is from China. So Chinese medicine is based a lot in Taoist thought. And a lot of the doctors that wrote the foundational texts in Chinese medicine came from areas where the information that they were utilizing was passed down through like an apprenticeship with another with another doctor and that came from whatever experience they had and and the the teachings that they were given by whoever they studied with about the flora and fauna in the area that would that would be used to heal certain conditions and and so it's it's sort of a combination of of like this sort of spiritual Taoist longevity practice rejuvenation practice chi cultivation practice and these these teachings that were passed down for millennia I'm assuming on what to to use to treat certain conditions for people that had a physical imbalance. Um, Chinese medicine, as as many people know, has this component to it called acupuncture. So Chinese medicine as a whole is is kind of seen as an umbrella under which the practice of acupuncture falls. But in China, Chinese medicine is sort of its own thing. It's like internal medicine using natural products like herbs and minerals and animal products, for example. And acupuncture is sort of a separate thing. So... It's interesting, I mentioned this in the book, too, that we're not really sure where it all originated from. And Etsy the Iceman was this this body they found in the Alps that's like thousands of years old, and it was found in the Alps, and they did a some sort of a PET scan or an MRI or something on it, and they found that this Etsy, they call him, had certain physical ailments. I think he had like degenerative arthritis in his in his a few discs in his vertebra in his back, and some other things going on, and on his skin, which was pretty well preserved they found these little tattoo etchings and it turns out that these little tattoo etchings are actually on places where there are acupuncture points and those acupuncture points are points that we use even today to treat the issues that they found that he had like the back pain so so it's 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 really hard to say i mean even with ayurveda where 
where exactly all the information came from. I mentioned in the in the first chapter in the book about the different types of medicine throughout the world, and, and I don't mention all of them, but I mentioned some of them that I'm pretty familiar with. And, for example, the ancient Egyptians had a humoral theory, just as the Greeks did, just as the Indians do, and just as the Tibetans do. And... It's fascinating to me to think that so much of ancient Egypt is still under the sand and and potentially the medical texts that could be found there, but I'm I'm kind of going off topic a little bit here. But my point is that it seems like there's this collective unconscious awareness of the need for the for these medicine systems and and that there there is one in place in every culture around the world i mean it's something that has been needed it's it's people are always getting hurt and always getting sick and and it's just fascinating to think about how this stuff all emerged like was there someone sitting in a cave somewhere meditating and and was mm-hmm. getting like these divine inspirations how much of it was trial and error, working with plants and rubbing leaves on on burns or whatever it is that people did. It's just fascinating to think about how people figured everything out that they did and came up with these complete systems of medicine. And I have great respect for Chinese medicine and although it it may not be today what it was even 100 years or 500 years in the past because the way that it's being disseminated now is so clinical, it's still, it's so amazing for acute ailments, for example. I used to have a pharmacy of a couple of hundred herbs and people would come in and have different things going on, and I would make them a tea that they would prepare with anywhere from two to 20 herbs in it. And they can have instantaneous results from, from taking these concoctions. It's just, or decoctions, it's, it's amazing to witness how the natural world can be utilized to to help us heal and and how quickly it can actually happen sometimes and to think that that just came down through thousands and thousands of years and a lot of times what happens too is that practitioners are so immersed in being in a certain headspace when they're working with people and when they're working with mixing teas and things like that that there's this intuitive inspiration that arises in just this knowing that this person needs this formula or this person needs this herb in this formula or this person needs these points today. And for whatever reason, you don't even always understand why on a logical level, but you do it anyway and it works. And 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 that's part of the whole process and that's part of 
of I think how the the medicine emerged as well people practicing and just getting these intuitive hits about things and trusting themselves and listening to that and using it on themselves and on their clients I like when you say the fact that thousands of years this stuff has maintained itself as a, as a practice and has remained intact. And the, I think when you look at it from our perspective now, from a revisionist point of view, there has to be a lot of respect that we need to show for both of these medical traditions because of the fact that they've endured the test of time. I mean, mm. when you look at, the amount of knowledge that was accumulated through those, you know, through that, that millennia, uh, that by itself shows me a, a very strong brand of sophistication that I believe our own society uh, likely does not always truly fully grasp or understand. Right. I think we're starting right. to move towards the idea of holistic care finally in the last 30 years. Now you're starting to see more of this. Um, like, for example, popularity of yoga, the popularity of massage therapy. Um, you just mentioned teas. I love, you know, different teas, and I just think it's great. Um, one of my questions to you would be, looking at this holistic approach, and then you compare it. I know they complement each other pretty well. With Chinese medicine, you got your acupuncture, your body work. And I feel like I think somewhere in your book you talked about Ayurveda fills in the gap where that might exist with Chinese medicine by focusing on dietary needs and cleansing. And mm-hmm. I want to see if you could talk a little about that further for our audience. Sure, sure. Um, I'd like to also add to what you just said about how these things have endured for thousands of years by saying they've, en- they've endured in the presence even of blatant attempts to suppress them. So it's not just that they were existing in isolation and somehow survived. There There were blatant attempts to suppress by governments and and even that wasn't able to to keep them out of out of the mainstream and and they still exist today. Yeah. That's a phenomenal point as well, when you had the suppression mm-hmm. that occurred there, and it still mm-hmm. endured. Um, right. That's huge. Right. I want to I talk a little bit about the five elements of Ayurvedic medicine. Can you describe those? I know you went into a little bit about it, but I wanted to see if you could at least talk about that in terms of the philosophy of it from your, from your, you know, your involvement with it and your familiarity with it. Sure. So the five elements in Ayurveda are, they are considered sort of the the building blocks, in a sense, of of matter. And they make up the, what are called the doshas in Ayurveda. And the, the doshas are what we have come to understand as being the body mind types. So the five elements are earth, ether, water, fire, and air. And 
that may sound very esoteric or like abstract, but it really isn't because each of the five elements has characteristics or qualities that are associated with them that are very tangible. So, for example, let's take fire. So fire is hot, obviously, and fire transforms things from one thing to another. So it will take something and it will make it into ash if you burn it. And fire has the quality, if you watch even a candle flame, it flickers and it moves. So there's this there's this quality, this flickering quality, this light quality, and this quality of transformation to fire. And so in the body, we can take this information that we know that is what part of what fire is as an as a foundational element of matter and we can translate that into things that go on in the in the mind and the body so fire being transformative is responsible for chemical reactions in the body fire having light is associated with a a glow or a spark in the body and fire burns so without the presence of water to balance it out it can create things in the body that we might call inflammation today things that we would associate with fire like burning sensations in the body even if it's a nerve sensation or if it's a a redness or a discomfort on the skin we can we can pretty much assume that that has some quality of the fire element to it so we can take that information and and see where the fire might be in balance in the person and where it might be out of balance and so we do that with all the elements and we do that in ayurveda and we also do that in Chinese medicine. And the elements are a little bit different in each system. And I go into this a little bit in the book as to why I think that is. But for the most part, they're both saying the same things but in different ways. So they're like different lenses through which reality is being perceived and explained. But they're both true. So as long as as long as you know what those things are in that system, you can effectively discern what they are and how they're presenting in the person that comes in for a treatment or a, or a consultation. That's very interesting. Very interesting. Can you tell us a little about what dosha theory is? Dosha theory is. Interestingly, the word dosha itself means something that's out of balance. So in Ayurvedic medicine, there are three doshas. And the the three doshas are, they are forces in nature and physiological functions in the body. 
And each of the three doshas, or what we often say constitutions, each of the three constitutions is a combination of two of the five elements. So each constitutional type has two dominant elements associated with it. One of the elements is the element that is more active and movable, and the other element is sort of the ground for that element to ground into. And each of the constitutional types are present in every single person, just like each of the five elements are present in every single person. And like I said before, they are just in different quantity and proportion in every single person. So two people can each be vata predominant, let's say, but they may look very different and they may behave very different. But the primary qualities in their presentation will be mostly of a vata type. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. So we'll, I can, I can so, see that. But they have the other two dosha types as well because we we are all a combination of all three. And the way I like to think of it is that our body is and our mind is constantly striving to achieve homeostasis, and we can either work with that and listen to the body, or we can be kind of stuck in our heads and just do these other things that we want to do without paying attention to the rest of ourselves. And that's oftentimes what throws us out of balance. In one of the Ayurvedic texts, it says to uh to not not following what you know is healthy for you is is one of the greatest obstacles to balance so knowing what is healthy for you isn't necessarily what is the latest diet that's gained popularity it's not necessarily what's considered healthy and organic by by mass culture. It's it's what is healthy for you. And so what I like to encourage people to do is yes, take a dosha quiz and 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 use that to to try and better understand yourself use it as a platform to really question what your beliefs are what your likes and your dislikes are some of the questions in these dosha questionnaires the, the, you just feel stumped sometimes when you take them you're like well i'm not sure what what the, what the answer to this is and it can be the simplest thing so it really causes you to to go within and and really be honest with yourself. But knowing what your dosha is, which can be either vata, pitta, or kapha, vata, pitta, pitta, vata, vata, kapha, pitta, kapha, et cetera, et cetera, it doesn't doesn't matter what it is. It's a helpful guideline and the way the doshas are presenting on any given day 
is a helpful guideline for for you to know or for a practitioner to know how best to help you come back into balance. But the the most important thing is not like saying, "Oh, I'm I'm pitta predominant, so I'm going to follow the pitta food list." It's more that self-questioning, what do I really want today? What what does my body really feel like it needs? And I'm not talking about cravings that we get when we're not in balance or or we're upset and we're craving comfort food or something like that. I'm talking about what really feels like it will nourish me. And and that would be regardless of whether somebody tells you grains are bad or beans are bad or you know this is good or that is good it doesn't matter what matters is that you that people start listening to themselves and trusting themselves in their own inner knowing and from there even the subtlest shift into connecting with yourself starts to turn into other subtle shifts and and I think that it that's like one of the primary things that can help bring us into balance because even sometimes the stuff on the food list isn't going to feel right because it won't be because maybe you need something warming because there's cold in your body or your vata is really high. So, I mean, taking the pitta example, pitta is largely fire and water. So pittas may present with mostly fire imbalances, but they may also have a vata imbalance. So then they may need to do things that soothe vata, which would be to, to balance it out with more warming, nourishing, nurturing things. Slowing down. So, does that answer your question? Definitely. I think it gives a great okay, overview. Okay. One of the things I'm looking at, and from what you're saying, in terms of the emphasis on these ancient traditions, would you say that part of what is relied upon for both of these approaches is a reliance on the body's ability to heal itself? With body, mind, and spirit, would that be something that you would think would be part of these traditions that you would highlight that's highlighted by your book? Absolutely, absolutely. You're not in. You're not giving somebody healing ability. That's already there. It's it's what needs to be tweaked or taken out or put in that's going to kickstart that healing ability, that's going to unstick the stuckness, that's going to help the chi and the blood flow better, that's going to move the prana in the right direction. So it's more like where are you going to just slightly recalibrate the system so that it kicks in and does the work on, on its own. That's what we're doing. I like that. That's I like That's that a the lot. way I look at it anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I want to ask you if you could discuss uh, pulse diagnosis. Yes. So pulse diagnosis is absolutely fascinating. And 
It's a it's a diagnostic modality that's used both in Chinese and in Ayurvedic medicine, and it's a very extensive, elaborate system of diagnosis. A really good pulse diagnostician can feel a person's pulse. They can pick up on things that have happened in their past, pick up on what's happening in their present, and may even be able to perceive, if they stay on the course that they're on, what could potentially be the trajectory that they're going to go to in the next six months or a year. So in Chinese medicine and Ayurveda, there are three pulse positions. So we use three fingers to take the pulse. So like in Western medicine, when you go to the doctor and they take your pulse, they might use one or two fingers, and they're feeling for the rate, and to make sure that the pulse is regular, uh, largely. That's what they're feeling for. They're going to count how many beats per minute, and they're feeling for any skips in the pulse or extra beats or anything like that. And that is certainly something that we feel for in these living traditional medicine systems. But what we also are feeling for is the flow of vitality through the meridians or the channels in the body that feed the organs. We're feeling for the vitality of the primary organs in the body. We're feeling for the, in Ayurvedic medicine, the prakruti, which is the, 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 constitution at at like in gestation at birth and then we're also feeling for the vikruti which is the constitution at the moment that you're seeing them and we're feeling for vata pitta kapha in each of the pulse positions that it's just it's so involved and then in chinese medicine we're feeling for the organs and the meridians and we're feeling if there's heat or dampness or blood stagnation and where that is in the body. And so we have three pulse positions, and different practitioners will take the pulse in different places. We're always taking the radial pulse. But the the finger positioning on the the meridian on the lung meridian is slightly different for certain practitioners. So, like uh, a, a very popular way to take the pulse in Ayurveda is to have the finger position above um, the bone at the at the edge of the wrist. And then in in Chinese medicine, we have the the finger more toward the thumb, the index finger. Some Ayurvedic practitioners will feel the pulse further up the arm. And then there are pulses all over the body that we can feel. And it's just it's just, just such a fascinating topic. And in India, my understanding now is that the the medical colleges, the Ayurvedic medical colleges, are actually encouraging the students to go find a guru of pulse diagnosis, which is a master of pulse diagnosis to study with kind of on the side so that the training can be more of, of the clinical aspect, but 
for people that really want to go into this deep wisdom and and subtle awareness of the pulse, you really need that one-on-one time and a lot of time and a lot of practice in order to be able to really feel what's going on. Um, some acupuncturists will take the pulse with every needle they put in because they're feeling for just subtle fluctuations, yeah, in the meridian to know if there's been enough stimulation in a certain meridian or not. It's really fascinating, and it takes a lot of practice and concentration, and it takes time, and it takes the practitioner having their own internal cultivation practice so that they have the sensitivity and the openness to be able to receive the to receive and discern the impressions that are that are going in when you when you first start taking pulse diagnosis and you go in with your fingers and you're feeling anywhere from between the very subtle light surface of the skin all the way down deep by the bone when you start to press in it feels like you're like an old-time phone operator, and you can hear every single conversation all at the same time. It's like there is so much information in there. It's amazing. And it changes with how comfortable the person is with you whose pulse you're taking. It changes with whether they had caffeine that morning, whether they they just had a big meal, if they eat meat or not, and if they did so, like, fairly recently to having their pulse. To, I mean, it, it's, it can be as gross or as subtle as you want to make it. So I didn't go I into that. pulse a, a lot in the book, but that's why it's because it's so much like hands-on apprenticeship type thing. Like you can read a book about pulse diagnosis, but really it's your own practice and, and bouncing that information off of a, of a really uh, – good master at taking the pulse i i would say it sounds like its own subspecialty within within the larger context of these traditions so that's that's phenomenal mm-hmm. i want to ask you one last question and then i wanted to also have you share your contact info and upcoming events the last question i want to ask okay. you what do you what do you think allopathic medicine can learn from ancient medical systems I think that allopathic medicine can learn or can accept the fact that there is a shift in thinking more toward the whole being of of an individual. And in order for that to happen, a lot of things are going to need to change, but w- Putting all that aside, I think that I think that allopathic medicine can take wisdom from ancient medicine and apply it in their very practice that they're doing today. They can look at the tongue. They can do some extracurricular pulse diagnosis training. They could do some extracurricular HARA diagnosis or abdominal diagnosis training face reading training, things that are extra little diagnostic tools that give clues to what 
systems could be off in a person's body, not just for people that are coming in who are sick, but for people that are on their regular maintenance checkups, like especially primary care, could look at a person's tongue and see, ooh, this person has a lot of dampness or ama, or this person has a lot of heat or inflammation, or this person's worrying too much, and it could be affecting their assimilation of nutrients. They could see that stuff right off the bat and use some preventative strategies to help that person correct it so that it doesn't develop into something bigger or badder in the future. Um, not necessarily, that's just a, a, a phrase, but it, it's not necessarily that things are bad, but that it doesn't develop into something that's more of an imbalance and difficult to treat in the future. And then from like a research standpoint, there are things that are talked about in Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine that could really direct sciences, like what science studies and in, in how they do it. Like, for example, there is the this thing called the Mo Yuan in Chinese medicine, and it's a structure in the body that that we as students kind of thought was the mesentery. And then in Chinese medicine it says that latent pathogens can, can linger and hide out in this Mo Yuan. And lo and behold, a couple of years ago, Western science, has recognized the mesentery as an organ and they know its structure, but they're still looking for what its entire function is as an organ. So from there, something simple like that, they can draw from, okay, this science from thousands of years ago has recognized that this thing exists and what it does. So maybe we ought to direct our research toward looking at what they say it does, but from an evidence-based medicine or evidence-based science perspective. So that's one that's one example. And another example would be from Chinese medicine, the Sanjiao or the triple warmer, and the fact that Western science has just recognized the interstitium, which is the fluid and connective tissue system in the body that permeates everything. And so also in Ayurveda, they say that most disease starts in the gut. So now we're finding that the gut microbiome is responsible for so much of the body's and the mind's health. And it's, so it's like they're, they're saying things in a different way in ancient medicine, but they're saying the same things that we know that we're just discovering even exist today or recognizing exist today. So I think that we can take that ancient wisdom and apply it to things that are newly emerging on a regular basis and and use it in in, in directing how how these things are researched. And th- those are just a couple of examples I could probably go on, but um I think that gives a good idea of 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 ways that they could be integrated. Absolutely no. I think I think you just gave a really great overview. Um, just being able to to approach this, I'm all big. I'm big about paradigm shifts and looking at mm. things from different part, different perspectives than just one point of view. Obviously, it's great to have an open mind, and that's one of the reasons I I, I love this. You know, having this program is to have 
outside perspective brought in and, and evaluated. And, you know, anyone who listens to you today, I feel like if they could take a general understanding of the fact that these two ancient traditions exist and that they understand it more than just what acupuncture might represent or herbal mm-hmm. remedies, there's a lot here with philosophy and just how to live your life with the preventative wellness, you know, component, um, detoxifying yourself. I like all that. I think that there's a lot here for people to really study, learn, and integrate into their own lives. And I think your book represents an incredible opportunity for anyone who's listening to this program to really take that step and do that and put it into play for themselves. I, I want to really, I know we're running low on time and I want to really thank you, Bridget, for coming on the show today and sharing your, your ex- expertise and your, your knowledge with these ancient traditions. I want to ask that you can please share for our audience where they could find out additional information about you and um, any upcoming workshops or, you know, classes that you might be offering either online or in person so that they, they can you know, follow up from here. Sure. So I have a website. It's BridgetShea.com, B-R-I-D-G-E-T-T-E-S-H-E-A, like the stadium, .com. And it has uh, resources that are going to be added on a regular basis. So right now I've got a talk up there that can be listened to and meditation on the breath. That's about 11 minutes long, and there will be some other things being added um, next week. And in addition to that, there will be some information on some classes that I have coming up, and one of them is an eight-week study with the book that helps people to understand better all the stuff that we just talked about and understand how it applies to them and how they can use those principles to bring balance and well-being to their lives and the lives of their loved ones. So um, that's all on the website, and it can be taken remotely or in person for those who are local to Saratoga. And uh, I just want to thank you for having me on the show tonight. This was This was great. This is phenomenal. I really enjoyed having you on explaining these complex concepts and breaking them down so that everyone can kind of have uh, a a great perspective on it. I think it's phenomenal. I encourage our audience to read your book firsthand and and, and really absorb these concepts in greater depth. Also looking at it from the perspective that if you think about our modern world with India and China and the civilizations that they represent, think about the population concentration. You've got approximately 2 billion people, uh, Mm -hmm. not even counting the surrounding countries on the Indian subcontinent like Nepal and other places, Sri Lanka, that adopt these concepts. I think it, it adds a lot to say that if a, if a good part of the world already subscribed to this stuff, we should definitely keep an open mind and, and definitely you know, pursue it ourselves and, and look at ways that we can maybe learn the foundational concepts to them and employ them in our lives to, to make us more balanced and well-rounded. So with that, I think that's phenomenal that you, you came on and at least gave us that opportunity to discuss this in greater context. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I really You're appreciate welcome. it. <laughs> Have a good thank night. Thank you. You too. I just want to tell everyone that this Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic nutrition and health represents some really great ideas to employ 
with under the whole mind, body, spirit paradigm, you see that gaining a lot of traction in our, in our society, Western societies, the United States. You'll see insurance companies offering incentives for policyholders to employ things such as preventative care. We see the rise of meditation and yoga, acupuncture becoming popularized in our society, the concept of detoxifying yourself and looking at your body as, as a whole system. And one of the things I think that's great about this is we can take what we gather from these concepts and use it to add to our level of care for ourselves outside of traditional medicine. But I feel like they could really work together, give us a really holistic, balanced approach. And that's, I, I believe, the goal is to prevent illnesses before they begin, to develop wellness approaches, and keeping the body detoxified, and, and really giving us that opportunity to heal ourselves where possible. I welcome anyone who's interested further in this area to check out Bridget Shea's website, BridgetShea.com. I really thank Bridget for coming on the show this evening and sharing her findings with us. It's great to have a Chinese medicine practitioner and Ayurvedic educator and acupuncturist sharing their viewpoints. Thank you so much for listening to our show this evening. I know that every one of our guests appreciates our audience learning about these concepts. And I just want to thank you for tuning in and supporting the show and exploring these ideals beyond what perhaps mainstream society portrays such as. At this point, I wanted to thank each of you. If you have any questions about our show or about any of our topics, you can always email me directly at info at the letter D, socialpsychicradio.com. Check out our site. I did just recently launch a YouTube channel, the Social Psychic YouTube channel. I had it on for a while, but I started putting up some posts. So if you'd like to check that out, feel free to find me on YouTube and uh, check, check, check us out there. Thank you again, and have a great night. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. 
Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric Acid. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Electric Cast. Electric Cast.